Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season seven, episode six, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 1960s slasher thriller Peeping Tom. It was written by Leo Marx and directed by Michael Powell. It stars Carl Boehm, Moira Shearer, Anna Massey, and Maxine Audley. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Are you still here? Okay, then let's get this morning started. So Leo Marx based parts of the film on his own experience growing up in the public eye, as well as on the regular patrons that visited his father's store. Marx, the son of Benjamin Marx, who owned the well-known Marx & Co. bookstore in London, remembers the various sex workers that would visit the shop. According to Peeping Tom, a very British psycho documentary, Marx stated that he was also inspired to write a horror story and become a codebreaker after reading The Gold Bug by American writer Edgar Allan Poe. Ooh. According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, the producers for the film originally wanted to st- a star to play the lead role. Actor Lawrence Harvey was attached for a while, but pulled out during pre-production, and director Powell ended up casting German-Austrian actor Karl-Heinz Boehm, billed as Karl Boehm. Boehm saw Lewis as a sympathetic character whom he felt great pity for. In a 2008 interview, Boehm stated that he could identify with the character because he also stood for a long time in the shadow of his famous father, conductor Carl Boehm, and had a difficult relationship with him. Pamela Green, a then well-known glamour model in London, was cast in the role of Millie, one of Lewis's victims, who appears nude on screen in the moments leading up to her murder scene. Fun fact, Green's appearance marked the first scene in British cinema that was not a porno to feature frontal nudity. Filming only took six weeks starting in October of 1959. Eventually, Peeping Tom was released in the UK on April 7, 1960. Unfortunately, it was a box office bomb. According to David Gritton, quote, London critics unanimously loathed it, and so scathing were their reviews that Powell found himself abruptly cast out into the wilderness. Uh He was effectively persona non grata in the British film industry, which had previously praised his work to the skies. Two of Britain's leading film critics at the time, both of them women, interestingly enough, spearheaded the attack on Powell. Over the years, several important filmmakers searched out rare prints of Peeping Tom. One was Martin Scorsese, who remarked, quote, I have always felt that Peeping Tom and Fellini's Eight and a Half say everything that can be said about filmmaking, about the process of dealing with film, the objectivity and subjectivity of it, and the confusion between the two. Peeping Tom shows the aggression of it, how the camera violates, unquote. Scorsese and other Powell admirers found an intact print of Peeping Tom, 
restored it and had it re-released internationally in 1979. So that was almost 20 years after its initial release. Fortunately for Powell, he was able to see the reputation of Peeping Tom rise in popularity over the years before his death in 1990, and many of the original critics who gave the film a scathing review have since apologized publicly for not recognizing the film's greatness. According to Gritton, quote, Peeping Tom is now regarded as a key film in British cinema history and one of the greatest horror movies of all time, unquote. Mm-hmm. With that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plot? Sure. Mark Lewis is a withdrawn camera operator living in London who spends his extra time taking stills and filming local sex workers for his boss. He lives by himself in an old tenement building that was owned by his father, a renowned scientist in England. It is revealed early on that Mark has voyeuristic tendencies and takes pleasure in recording the fearful faces of women who he murders with his camera tripod by stabbing them to death. Over the years, he has compiled many reels of film capturing the last moments of these women. One day, he meets one of his building's tenants, a young woman named Helen, who lives with her blind mother. He is smitten by her, and one night he shows her old reels of himself as a child captured by his father. He tells her that his father would experiment on him and constantly filmed him, even wiring the rooms of his home to capture any sounds he made. Mark's father would purposely scare him in order to observe his reactions and eventually used his research to enhance his career. Helen is frightened by the film and leaves Mark's room, but attempts to have a relationship with him anyway. Meanwhile, Mark arranges a meeting with a stand-in actress and dancer that he knows through his work at a local film studio. He tricks her by telling her that he needs her for his short film, but murders her on camera instead, leaving her body in a trunk used for a prop in the film he is working on. The next day, the stand-in's body is discovered, and he films the cast and crew's fearful reactions. The police begin an investigation and keep a close eye on Mark, watching him as he leaves work and asking him questions about his time at the studio. Mark and Helen begin spending more and more time with each other, and she asks him to take pictures for a children's book that she is having published. One night after a date with Helen, Mark arrives home and begins watching one of his troubling films, unaware that Helen's blind mother is waiting for him in his apartment. She reveals that she knows he is disturbed in some way and threatens to move out in order to keep her daughter safe. Later that day, Mark kills a sex worker named Millie that he'd worked that he'd worked with previously, and the police link him to the crime. At this point, the police are hot on Mark's trail, and he returns home and discovers that Helen has watched one of his snuff films. He admits everything to her and explains his obsession with filming fear. It is then revealed that Mark not only stabs his victims to death on camera, but he also makes his victims watch their own death by placing a mirror on his camera at the last minute. Do you know what the most frightening thing in the world is? It's fear, he says to Helen. Mark then tries to film Helen's death, but he decides not to kill her. As the police close in on him, he decides to kill himself by impaling himself on his tripod knife while watching himself die in the mirror. Helen, confused and heartbroken, cries over his lifeless body as the police storm in. Wow, thank you, Abby, for that wonderful plot summary. Well, you're welcome. It's uh, it's quite a... <laughs> conundrum of a film that's for sure <laughs> it's an amazing film though it's, it's so, so beautifully good. done oh 
I know. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about the Bechdel test. No, it doesn't pass. The only conversations between women with names in this film are about men. Mm. So let's talk about Nancy's dream team test. It's um, it's not going to be pretty, guys. <laughs> so was the supporting cast at least 50% women? No, it actually just misses the mark. Did a woman write, direct, or produce the film? No, but a woman did edit the film. Her name was Noreen Auckland. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? No. And were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? No. So D minus, because I guess there was a female editor, which is basically like the right hand job to a director. And you know what? I think I'm going to add that to the test. I think I'm going to ask if a woman wrote, directed, or edited, or produced the film. Because, like, we talked in a little bit about Sally Menke, who was Tarantino's longtime editor before her untimely death in our Death Proof episode. So uh, I think that's good. we're going to add that because that is in a very important job. And sometimes editing, in fact, actually, I think editing makes or breaks a film. So yeah. Uh, we're going to add that to the test. Cool. So let's get into our discussion. Let's start with the term peeping Tom. Yeah. So <laughs> it becomes pretty clear early on that Mark derives pleasure from using his camera to look at the expressions of fear on women's faces. And we'll talk later about the relationship Mark's father has with him as it plays a pretty pivotal role in his voyeurism. But here I think it's important to focus on Mark's sexuality in regards to his scopophilia. So in an article published by Laura Mulvey for Lux Online, she delves into the relationship between cinema and psychoanalysis. And she says, quote, The cinema offers a number of possible pleasures. One is scopophilia. There are circumstances in which looking itself is a source of pleasure, just as in the reverse formation, there is pleasure in being looked at. Originally, in his three essays on sexuality, Freud isolated scopophilia as one of the component instincts of sexuality, which exist as drives quite independently of their erotogenic zones. At this point, he associated scopophilia with taking other people as objects, subjecting them to a controlling and curious gaze. His particular examples center around the voyeuristic activities of children, their desire to see and make sure of the private and forbidden, curiosity about other people's genital and bodily functions, about the presence or absence of the penis, and retrospectively, about the primal scene. In this analysis, scopophilia is essentially active. Later, in Instincts and Their Vicissitudes, Freud developed his theory of scopophilia further, attaching it initially to pregenital autoeroticism, after which the pleasure of the look is transferred to others by analogy. There is a close working here of the relationship between the active instinct and its further development in a narcissistic form. Although the instinct is modified by other factors, in particular the constitution of the ego, it continues to exist as the erotic basis for pleasure in looking at another person as object. At the extreme, it can become fixated into a perversion, producing obsessive voyeurs and peeping toms whose only sexual satisfaction can come from watching in an active, controlling sense an objectified other." Unquote. I mean, it's pretty easy to see here why Mark receives sexual gratification through his use of cinema and his camera. 
He objectifies the woman that he films and uses their fear as a way to satisfy his own sexual cravings, and his camera basically becomes his penis, along with the tripod that he uses as his weapon. We can easily attribute the blade at the end to an erect penis, and he uses that to penetrate his victims. So he learned early on to associate sexuality with a video camera, so this is second nature to him. While it took some creativity, he learned to use his camera to implement his sexuality because he is too shy and withdrawn to have any kind of meaningful sexual relationship with the women in his life. This is an interesting segue into our next topic because I feel as though many women experience this in filmmaking, unfortunately. Like, men use their ability and influence as filmmakers to victimize women. Right, yeah. So this would be the male gaze in Peeping Tom and, of course, other films as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's really great that you mentioned Laura Mulvey because she's actually an acclaimed feminist theorist and a filmmaker. And she's probably most known for starting the term the male gaze. Like we say it all the time now. And for those of you who don't know, the male gaze is the act of depicting women and the world in the visual arts and in literature from a masculine heterosexual perspective that presents and represents women as sexual objects for the pleasure of the male viewer. Mm. Using this theory, Mulvey wrote an article about Peeping Tom when it was released by the Criterion Collection. She says, quote, the film's central character is a young cameraman and thus the story of voyeuristic perversion is equally overtly set within the film industry and the cinema itself, foregrounding its mechanisms of looking and the gender divide that separates the secret observer, male, and the object of his gaze, female. The cinema spectator's own voyeurism is made shockingly obvious And even more shockingly, the spectator identifies with the perverted protagonist. It is this relentless exposure of cinematic conventions and assumptions that has attracted the interest of feminist film critics and the recent application of psychoanalytic theory to film theory clearly reveals the film's psychoanalytic frame of reference, unquote. And, you know, this is really interesting to me because Mark is not only making these films for himself, but in a really meta way, he's making this film, he's making these films for us, the audience. Mm -hmm. And I would also like to point out that all of these women are positioning themselves in a way that pleases the men in the film, like within the story. And um, I think everyone except the mother is doing this, but we're going to talk about the mother in just a second. Um, So according to Adam Call Roberts in their article, Peeping Tom and the Male's Gaze, quote, we see women from the perspective of men and women see themselves from the perspective of men. (laughs) So Mark's girlfriend, Helen, assigns herself the Manic Pixie Dream Girl script and devotes her every moment to positioning herself in Mark's mental frame in the way she thinks is best. The star of the movie Mark works on devotes herself to positioning her body in the way the male director desires. And the stand-in positions herself for both the director and Mark. And the porn models clearly do as well. And even though Helen is capable of writing a book, she needs a man to provide the pictures for it and even to tell her what sort of pictures are needed, unquote. So, yeah, like all of these women in this film depend on the opinions of men. 
And again, it's basically everyone but the mother, but we can argue that she does depend on Mark. And again, we'll talk about her in a minute. Kimberly Pierce argues that although the male gaze is present, however, the film shows the grounded reality these women must face. Their jobs, because all of these women are in fact working women, which is actually kind of nice, are unfortunately at the mercy of the men, like because of their job. And Pierce says, quote, the story development around the women is interesting and shows a surprising lack of sexualization. This is quite notable, especially for a film of this subject matter. They are not glamorized and sexualized. Rather, the story shows them with realistic and dangerous problems, unquote. And, you know, this makes a whole lot of sense to me, which is why I feel like this film is more of a a commentary on the male gaze rather than a film made with the male gaze, if that makes any sense. Yeah, for sure. Like, yeah, like, for instance, I'm going to use Transformers here. Um, (laughs) Gross. (laughs) uh, Listen, we all know that scene with Megan Fox dripping with sweat, bending over a car while the camera looks her up and down, right, when she's working on Bumblebee. And I remember seeing this film in theaters on a first date of all of all times. Um, but I remember seeing this film in theaters and being so incredibly uncomfortable. And because I was on a first date, I also felt hella awkward. And like that scene is probably one of the most obvious contemporary scenes involving the male gaze. And, mm-hmm. you know, Peeping Tom doesn't really do that. Even at when we're like looking at Miss Green's lovely boobs, um, I, I don't feel like we are looking at them in a way that is, um, she's not sexualized in that scene is what I'm trying to say. And, um, if it does happen at all, it's when Mark is filming the women right before he kills them, showing metaphorically that the male gaze is dangerous for women. And what's even more meta is that Mark shows the women being gazed at. Like, he shines a mirror in their face, is what I'm trying to say. Like, they see what he sees in them. And they must witness what Mark is also witnessing. And this is what I mean when I say I felt so awkward watching Megan Fox's body portrayed that way on screen because it was like someone was watching me Like, I felt like I was looking at myself in that way and like seeing her body portrayed that way kind of made me like cringe. Like I didn't want somebody to look at me that way. And this is why the women are so frightened in Peeping Tom. Like when he turns that mirror on them, like they're watching their own bodies be objectified metaphorically. Obviously, they're watching their own bodies be killed. But if we twist that and look at the themes of this, it's like these are women watching themselves being objectified and sexualized by a man. And it's scary. Yeah. Well, and I think it's important to note here that there's a difference between showing the human body in a tasteful or like artistic way. And then there's the male gaze, which is what we're talking about. Like what is so frightening in this film is that Mark touts himself as, you know, like a photographer, quote unquote. And that leads us to believe at first that he does it for the love of his craft and his or that he's just trying to make a buck in order to get by much like the sex workers that he photographs. Like, it's his quietness and his stealth and his withdrawn personality that makes these women feel comfortable at first. And then when we learn more about his childhood and where his obsession and voyeurism comes from, it makes it ten times scarier because it's problematic. 
it's films like this and Psycho, which actually came out the same year. And Psycho is usually paired with this film, but this is probably the only time I'm going to pair it with this film because I think it's its own film in its own way. But it sort of has the same theme here. Men look at women. Women watch themselves being looked at. And that's a quote from John Berger in Ways of Seeing. And Mulvey concurs that even female viewers must watch most films through the prism of the male perspective, like what we just mentioned. Powell, meanwhile, forces us to inhabit the perspective of the killer, showing us the murders through the lens of Mark's camera to analogize spectatorship with participation, highlighting our complicity by implying our voyeuristic impulses are no different from Mark's. We are asserting power over the object of our look, unquote. Okay, so let's talk about Helen's mother. I want to take a brief look at her before we get into Helen herself. Um, Mrs. Stevens is blind, obviously, and her blindness almost acts as a superpower. She's able to, so to speak, see Mark's bullshit, and she's also able to creep into his room every night without him knowing, which is very impressive. Um, yeah. (laughs) And you know what's so funny is that this sort of makes her a peeping Tom herself, Oh my god, and yeah. Yeah, so like even she's guilty of it. And it's also an interesting example of a woman who doesn't fall for the male gaze like the other victims in this film. According to Nora E. Rossbach in her essay, Peeping Tom and the Critical Movie Viewer, quote, as the mother figure in the film, Mrs. Stevens represents the abject for Mark and the film industry. In Barbara Creed's Horror and the Monstrous Feminine, an imaginary objection, she argues for the mother as abject because the child struggles to break free, but the mother is reluctant to release it. Mrs. Stevens represents a direct threat to Mark's existence and his enterprise by entering his studio unannounced. She also represents a threat to the viewer's role as voyeur as a blind woman seeing the perversity of Mark's films. Because Mrs. Stevens is not vulnerable to Mark's weapon, Mark is afraid of her. Mark cannot victimize Mrs. Stevens because she would be unable to perceive the distorted image of herself necessary for the perfect terror that Mark is trying to capture, unquote. I mean, to me, Mrs. Stevens represents the other side of the parental figure in the film. Mark's father was blind to what was literally right in front of him. Like, he used his son as an experiment to learn more about fear and in turn gave his child a complex. He was constantly watching Mark. So while Mrs. Stevens wasn't able to do that with her daughter, she learned how to sense that fear without ever like needing to see her daughter's reaction it's almost a testament to like the maternal instinct and in a way i think mark's father was trying to get a sense of that maternal part of himself maybe like when mark started killing these women maybe that was his way of connecting with a female energy that he never really knew Mm. because we know that his mother she died when he was very young and he was pretty bitter about the woman who replaced her So through his own experiments, maybe he was trying to learn more about the female psyche and that feminine side that he never got to experience. And Mrs. Stevens also learns to cut through the bullshit and tell Mark to get help for himself. And in a way, that was a very motherly thing to do. And like, I think it's super progressive, given that this film was made in 1960. Like, she was a mom ahead of her time, for sure. 
Well, yeah. And I think it's also interesting that Mrs. Stevens has a cane with a knife at the end of it. Very similar to Mark's tripod leg that also has a knife, which you mentioned earlier. Yeah. And she's able to fight back with a weapon of equal strength. And as Rossbach said, her blindness is part of her ability to survive. However, and here's where we get it gets tricky. Mrs. Stevens is still at the mercy of Mark in the end. According to Adam Call Roberts, quote, when she confronts Mark, she breaks down and reveals her total dependence on seeing through his eyes. She begs both to know what is on the screen, what am I seeing, and have her picture taken, unquote. So much like the working women in the film who are victimized, including her own daughter, which we'll get to next, Mrs. Stevens depends on a man to tell her where to go and what to do and what to see. Yeah. So with all that said, like, why is Helen, her daughter, able to survive at the end of the film? Well, Linda Williams suggests in her essay, When a Woman Looks, that Mark sees her as an artist and a visionary in her own right. Mm. It's not until she asks him to help her that she becomes, like, really dependent on him, like we mentioned earlier. And he says at the end of the film that he didn't want it to be her, that he didn't want to hurt her, and that he doesn't want to see her afraid or else he might kill her. And Linda Williams says again in her essay, um, quote, in the classic horror film, the woman encountered a monster whose deformed features suggested distorted mirror reflection of her own putative lack in the eyes of the patriarchy. In Peeping Tom, however, the woman's look is literally caught up in a mirror reflection that does not simply suggest an affinity with the monster in the eyes of the patriarchy, but attempts to lure her into the false belief that she is the monster. The point of the film, of course, is to show that the woman is not the monster, unquote. And I love that because that is why I think ultimately Helen is able to survive at the end. Unlike her mother, who legitimately cannot see, Helen can see and then she chooses not to see herself as the monster. She closes her eyes when Mark presents the mirror to her. And Williams continues saying, quote, Helen's refusal of the mirror marks an important moment in the history of the woman's look in the horror film. In a rare instance, her look both sees and understands the structure of seeing what would entrap her, unquote. So Helen's refusal of the mirror trap is the refusal to see herself in the eyes of the patriarchy. She refuses to see her body sexually like violated on screen. And that's why she wins at the end. And Mark can't physically and mentally handle it. So he kills himself with his own device because he needs to be pleasured in some way before he's taken away from the police. And he can't do it through Helen. Like Helen is us as an audience member. We're refusing the male gaze, so to speak. This movie is so mad. I love it. Like, I love that about Helen as a character. She refuses to see that. Yes, that's like, like we mentioned before, too. It's super ahead of its time because even after this film, there were like, obviously in the horror genre, there's a ton of that. But even in like other genres and other films and stuff, like it's used so much. And this film just went 
against the grain when it came to that. So I don't know. I love it too. Yeah. So let's talk about the sexual themes that are presented in Peeping Tom. We mentioned Mark's sexual motivations earlier when Abby, you explained scopophilia, but let's talk a little bit more about it. One might argue that much like final girl Lori Strode, Helen survives her encounter with the monster, Mark, because she is virginal. Mm. Unlike the other women presented to us in the film, Helen does not use her sex or her body to make money. She's not an actress, dancer, or sex worker. In fact, she's a children's author. And (laughs) yeah, and she uses her mind, her imagination even, to make money. And going back to the use of the male gaze in this, most of the men in this film stand behind the camera and are not the object being filmed. And not just Mark, but like the film crew are all men in this and the policemen are all men in this and they're always behind the camera. And I think from what I can remember, the only man on film is the actor who is selling trunks or like, you know, luggage to the Mm. actress in that one scene. And like, I suppose the policemen who are carrying out the first body, uh, the first victim, I guess I should say in the film, but they are not the main event. Like the women are the, the key star in these films. Carol J. Clover argues in her book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, that Mark's camera as well as all the other cameras used in this film, are phallic, just like you mentioned, Abby. And the men are givers, while the women are all the receivers, basically, which would make sense for Helen, because it's not until she asks Mark to use his phallic camera to take pictures for her children's book that she puts herself in danger of no longer being a virgin, metaphorically speaking. So I love that, too. And interestingly... Um, Mark's character is sort of both phallic and yonic. When he's a pubescent child, he is made to be on camera constantly. So he's uh, the receiver in that sense. And Clover states that Mark is the bearer of both gazes, and it is the relation and distinction between them that Powell's film is all about. And she also says, quote, inside every peeping Tom is a peeped at child trying incessantly to master his own pain by reviewing it in the person of another, unquote. This actually has a lot to do with like how we teach our children about sexuality generationally. This was made at the beginning of Britain's sexual revolution when suppression was a really hot topic and, you know, sex was still seen as a shameful activity. I mean, look at the old man in the beginning of the film that goes into the newsstand to buy smut. Like, he hides his purchases from other customers and is so preoccupied with buying his nudes that he almost forgets to grab his newspaper on the way out. Yes. Like, sex had to be hidden away and spoken about in code, and for a child that never got any privacy or never had any room to question his own sexuality or connect with himself in that way, he went down a dangerous, non-consensual path that led to the destruction of the women around him in his life. But, you know, if you notice, he finds sexually promiscuous women expendable he only values helen because she's a young virginal and innocent woman right yeah and like a classic final girl only is only like worthy of living because she is pure and innocent right and Mm -hmm. it's so stupid and i mean like when she first meets mark he gives her milk to drink yeah like (laughs) a baby or a kitten (laughs) It's so weird. It is weird. I and I think it's it, it's totally intentional. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
for sure. He could have easily given her water, but I think like Powell and our screenwriter, I think they knew exactly what they were doing by giving her milk. Like she is made to look like this innocent little baby. And um, eventually he also gifts her a dragonfly brooch. And I got to mention that real quick because you know me, I love like symbolism. And in Celtic symbolism, dragonflies are actually fairies in disguise. You cannot get much more delicate and childlike than that. Like she's completely like looked at as this virginal baby. So let's get into our final thought. Children and the consequences from a lack of privacy. So this is, there's going to be a lot of hot takes in here, guys. So uh, (laughs) get ready. Yes. (laughs) So according to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film Peeping Tom, quote, on the surface, the film is about the Freudian relationships between the protagonist and, respectively, his father and his victims. Mark is a loner whose only constant companion is his film camera. He is also a victim of his father's studies in the phenomenon of fear in children, a human guinea pig subjected to sadistic experiments, unquote. Let's look into this relationship between father and son. (laughs) The very first thing that came to my mind was how some parents overshare their children's lives on social media. And um, obviously, it's 1960. Social media is non-existent at the time of this film. But what struck me was Mark's reaction to Helen asking him why his father was filming him so much. And Mark says, quote, he wanted a record of a growing child, complete in every detail, if such a thing were possible. And he tried to make it possible by training a camera on me at all times. I never knew the whole of my childhood, one moment's privacy, unquote. Ooh, it's actually, that's a powerful quote. And there are so many ways this film is ahead of its time, Abby. And I think that this is just another major one, in my opinion. Yeah, that was one of the first things that popped into my head while I was watching this, too. Like, Mark didn't really have a choice when it came to being the center of his father's experiment. And it feels like Mark's father only had him to further his career as a scientist. There weren't a lot of ethics in place when it came to this experiment, and as a adult, you got one seriously fucked up kid. Like, his father was filming him during years of crucial development, and it's usually around that age that kids start to notice more about sexuality, and they start to ask questions, and Mark was scared into submission, I think, and it and he wasn't really allowed to question what was going on with his own life. I absolutely agree, like, totally, and... Like, to back this theory up, I want to mention an article by Forbes by uh, Elizabeth Fernandez. And this was published in July of 2019, so just a few months ago. And she begins by stating that we are already pretty aware that computer screens can affect a child's development. But what many parents don't realize is that giving your child a social media presence before they even know what a screen or what social media is can be just as damaging. And she states that it may seem benign to share your child's photos on the internet, but like that it, quote, may lead to identity theft, virtual kidnapping, and may even affect child development. And what's mostly overlooked, however, is the developmental harm of, quote, unquote, sharenting. Cute pictures of a baby running naked through the house, like embarrassing things that their child might have said or done. These children grow up in a world where they are being watched and everything they do or say has the potential to be shared with friends 
and strangers alike. Their brand is curated by their parents, grandparents, or guardians. As this brand is being established, children themselves are in the process of forming their own identities. Identity is not something we are born with. These children's understandings of privacy are also warped. Being monitored may lead children to not fully comprehend the importance of privacy in a digital world. They may be more reluctant to make mistakes, knowing that every failure and misstep is being watched. So not just by those around them, but by anyone who logs in, unquote. Obviously, parents have the right to make their own personal choices on how to raise their children. And obviously, the majority of parents do not completely destroy their children on social media. But I I can't help but compare Mark's childhood to that of a parent who never gives their their child any privacy by posting like every second of their young life onto social media. Obviously, it's a personal choice. Like motherhood and parenting is just hard enough without someone telling you what you're doing is wrong. And I don't agree with that. And that's not what I'm trying to do here. Um, I'm just making an observation. And I don't know. I just really, I don't know. I felt that connection here uh, of Sharentine with Mark and his father in Peeping Tom. Like social media may not have existed in 1960, but Mark's father uses the studies he has done on his son and he and he shares them in a book for others to read. So like he doesn't even hide the fact that he like his son is the subject of this book because he thanks his son at the beginning of the book, like his name and everything. Yeah. So anyone who reads this book knows that they are reading about Mark. Well, I mean, Mark even stumbles across another scientist who knew his father. So there's obviously a little bit of notoriety there. And like Mark learned from an early age to associate having a camera around constantly to having a relationship with someone you're close to. And I think it taught him to use his camera to seek validation. Mm -hmm. When we learn about relationships as kids, the first people a child typically picks up social cues from are their parents. So it's not hard to see why Mark is pretty much fucked when it comes to his relationships. Like his camera is his safety blanket and it's a reminder of positive responses from his father when he was a child. And for him, it's not like he can block out or move on from certain memories or frightening instances because it's all there on film permanently. And I'm super interested to see what the development of our generation of kids coming up will be like because they have similar circumstances. Like all of their memories are plastered on the internet and there's no going back and no getting rid of them. And that's bound to interrupt some really crucial developmental points. Like there's a reason why we forget things as children because we, when we experience something, it shapes us and then we move on and create space for more memories or other crucial developments. We're creating new ways for our kids to develop without even thinking about it really. And in a way it's incredible, but there are so many other ways that this can backfire. And I think it mostly has to do with like FOMO or like feeling of missing out as well. Like we've all become attached to our phones and technology and we feel like we have to capture every single moment. I love that you just mentioned FOMO because 
that is something else that's really interesting about Mark. He is extremely attached to his camera, much like how we are all in present day, very attached to our phones. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of his security blanket, just like it's our security blanket. And Mark sees like a couple making out when he's with Helen and he immediately wants to film it. Like he instinctively goes for his camera on his shoulder, but he doesn't have it. Just like we will sometimes instinctively go into our purses, or our pockets to get our phone because we want to record or take a picture of something and like Helen earlier in the scene has asked him to leave it at home like she eventually persuades him to just enjoy this moment or this date with her and like he doesn't need to document every single moment or weird thing that happens just live in the moment with her and you know, I've always hated the phrase pics or it didn't happen. My God, that is so incredibly damaging. Like you can absolutely have a really beautiful and meaningful moment in your life without having to share it or without having to document it. Yeah, like personally for my family, we capture a lot of images and video of everyday life, like our dogs, friends, family, etc. Because like um, my boyfriend has like memory issues so that kind of thing is cool like to be able to have at our fingertips to capture the really important moments but now I think like we as a modern society have trouble distinguishing what's important and what becomes an everyday thing that we should just be experiencing together as a family I'm about to kind of sound like a hippy dippy over here but I think really it's it comes down to us not being able to shut down because we feel like every single little detail has to be documented. Like it changes the way that humans interact with our environment. And in turn, it's it changes our brains and the way we process and develop. So I think that like a lot of people are like, oh, it's kind of a fine line. I don't really think it is. I think that we are just having problems distinguishing like when to turn off the camera, I guess, like when it's appropriate and when it's not. I'm like you said earlier, I'm really curious to see where children are developmentally in a few years with social media, growing up with social media. Yeah. Um, it's going to be a, a very interesting and very powerful future. So, um, yeah, you know, I guess stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> well, Thank you, Abby. That was great. That's it for this week's episode of Good Morning Nancy. Treat yourself to some Good Morning Nancy merch and check out our shop. We've got coffee mugs and sweatshirts and t-shirts and more. Head on over to goodmorningnancy.com slash merch and click the shirt icon to be taken to our shop. And if you're not already a patron, go to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy for some sweet extra content in your coffee. We upload full-length episodes early, give away patron gifts, and review horror trailers, TV shows, and new movies over there too sometimes time so become a patron won't you you can also help support the show by following us on social media facebook at good morning nancy twitter at good morning nan and instagram at good morning nancy podcast you can also help us out by telling a friend and spreading the word about our show we love you all to death have a good morning bye bye